Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. great reality of social media now is that it's given people an unintermediated direct route to readers and other people. That's been a hugely potent tool for him, both against his opponents and the press. And he uses it very effectively because he's someone who thinks in sound bites. He's got a very short attention span. He likes to go for quick emotional hits. Twitter certainly lends itself to that, as does Facebook. My esteemed guest today is many things. An editor, always in demand. A father. He's also, quote, a loser, really dishonest, a really stupid talking head, and a dumb guy with no clue, close quote. All according to Donald Trump, the GOP's freshly nominated man for the White House. And the subject of my guest's book about the guy. Who'd have thunk 2016? Full disclosure, stay with us. Today's episode is brought to you by Health Warrior, maker of Chia Bars. Why sacrifice taste for health when we put a man on the moon, after all? Sporting only 5 grams of sugar and 100 calories each, Health Warrior Chia Bars are the only bar with superfood chia seeds as the number one ingredient. They've become my go-to power snack with flavors like coconut, chocolate peanut butter, dark chocolate, banana nut, and personal favorite, mango. Pick some up at stores like Whole Foods, Wegmans, Target, or for my RVA listeners, Elwood Thompson's. If you're bold enough to buy a box of 15 bars, get 15% off at healthwarrior.com by entering code FULL15 at checkout. And by Elwood Thompson's. The success of Elwood Thompson's is determined by customer connection, steward happiness, and local community engagement. We intend to grow our business by offering clean, high-quality products at fair prices with friendly, knowledgeable customer assistance. Elwood's is a mission-first driven business. Real local RVA, and you must check out Brunch at Elwood's now served every weekend, Saturdays till 11 a.m., Sundays till 2 p.m., and The Beat and Indian Wednesdays. Visit them at the top of Carytown and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining us from Bloomberg's mothership in Midtown Manhattan is Timothy O'Brien, executive editor of Bloomberg View and Bloomberg Gadfly. He has been an editor and a writer for The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, HuffPost, and Talk Magazine. You've been poached more than Dikembe Mutombo, or you've journeymaned <laughs> more than him. And your books critically include Trump Nation, The Art of Being the Donald, for which Donald Trump attempted to sue you for $5 billion. How are you, sir? I'm great, Robin, and it's great to be here. I know that's a mouthful, but did that sum up your body of work? Have you done anything more infamous than that? No, I think you hit the high <laughs> notes, and I'm flattered to be on here talking with you. Let me ask you, did you have an out-of-body moment as you saw him accept the nomination last night? As, as recently as 10 months ago, it was pretty unthinkable. If you look at those panels on Meet the Press or Face the Nation, people thought it was just like a, a risible idea that Donald Trump, this showman, this carnival barker, could be the GOP's man in 2016. You know, I have to say, I never discounted early on the possibility that he'd be the nominee, not because I'm particularly prescient or more insightful than anyone else, but I did think he was stepping into the a vacuum at a very unusual moment with, I think, the long arm of the 2008 financial crisis still being visited upon average Americans and issues in the air that he was able to exploit. And 
You know, I remember I was on a television show, I think in July or August of last year, and the host kept saying to me during the interview about Trump, where's the exit ramp? What's the exit ramp? And, and that was sort of the term everyone kept using when talking about Trump. What's the exit ramp going to be? And I said at the time, and we could go to the tape, I said, I don't know why everyone's talking about an exit ramp because he's clearly not going to go away. And there's clearly a deep kind of pulse that he's put his fingers on. Now, at that time, I thought, you know, he would be around at least until the Iowa caucuses, which were last February, because he was running a skeletal operation. It cost him no money to stay in the game. And he was having the time of his life. The thing to understand about Donald Trump is that he's an attention junkie. And he loves to be watched and he loves to be listened to. It's the animating force of his whole life. And his ability to do that on an international stage via the 2016 presidential election was like manna from heaven to him. And so mm. I'd never thought he was going to go away. And for as much as people keep saying about what a deep, big field the GOP primary roster was, there were a lot of doofuses in that group, I think. And people who weren't running very or and or weren't running great campaigns. And I think when you have a kind of a lackluster bench of contenders, you've got a, a moment in which you've got a very angry electorate, and you've got a candidate who is essentially the P.T. Barnum of our era, it creates a perfect storm. And I think he walked into that. I do think the general election is going to be a very different thing. I have a couple of questions regarding this because I'm still in my moment of disbelief. I understand frustration with 2008 and the long tail of 2008. The banks were recapitalized. Capital has done far better than employment or wages. I mean, things you guys have covered intensely in both Bloomberg View and Gadfly. This has been a very unequal recovery from a really a, a taking down of many middle class and lower middle class people. Why would they pin their hopes on an Upper East Side billionaire? I mean, how is he a vessel for the frustrated blue collar worker out there, the person who's been left out? I understand the jingoism might appeal to people, but I, I, I don't think he's a self-made man from Oklahoma. He's not a governor. He doesn't have a rags to riches story, truly. So how did that ever resonate from the outset? Well, I think what you and I and the rest of the elite media know about Donald Trump isn't commensurate with what the masses in America know of him. Their intersection with him has been through The Apprentice, where he's a guy in a boardroom in an expensive suit who is a take-no-prisoners deal-maker, and he's teaching young wannabe apprentices how to succeed in the world. And he's a guy who doesn't brook garbage. He's a guy who tells it like it is. He's a can-do, hard-headed business person at a time when the voters are sick of Washington. So I think that's one element of his appeal. I think the media for quite a while didn't do a great job of educating the public about who Donald Trump really, really? is. Really? The public so had to be educated about who Donald Trump is. I mean, in my mind, the anchoring is 1980s billionaire. And I was surprised even that The Apprentice... You and I are an average people. You, do, you, not... do you think of me as media, a typical media lead? I mean, I'm a blue-collar guy with a podcast. I mean, I know you eat at Le Cirque, but it's it's a very different world for me, Tim. <laughs> I don't eat... I do not eat Tim, at Le Cirque, you know, I root, I root I for the Dodgers. You know, I, 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 I'm a Cubs fan. <laughs> Keep going. Keep going. No, well, I do think we're elite, even if it's not elite by income or elite by status, 
we are the knowledge elite. We, you know, we're in a profession that is hungry for information and thrives on being informed. And we're much more, I think, conversant in the nuts and bolts of issues and people than most average Americans are. So I do think it's a differentiator. I don't think the media has appreciated the extent to which the American electorate is ignorant of the reality of Donald Trump because he's not a great deal maker. He hasn't been a good businessman. He's the epitome of style over substance. But I don't think the media has understood that that's lost on most Americans. Secondly, I don't think the media understands that it doesn't matter to most Americans. You know, I've written pieces critical of Donald Trump, and I've gotten email from people saying, I don't disagree with anything in the columns you've written. And these are recent columns, you know, since since last summer till now. And I remember one in particular, the writer said, I don't disagree with anything in your column, but here's something you've got to understand. I don't care about his background. I want a Rottweiler who's going to go to Washington and rip the face off of Congress. And, you know, that kind of animosity towards Washington, a chunk of which Washington, which has been deadlocked and ineffective for quite a while now, has brought upon itself. The other thing is the jingoism of Trump when he talks about building a wall with Mexico, for example, or the way he's characterized Muslims. You know, he's a race baiter. He's a bigot. He's a sensationalist. He's all of those things. But all of those things also speak to the perception of, I think, post-industrial, blue-collar, white male workers who've lost jobs and mortgages and pensions and their children's futures and see those things as being forfeited at the feet of immigrant workers and competition from China. Sure. And those are essentially, you know, those are the strings that Trump has plucked. Now, part two of my query is you, you talked about a mediocre field in the GOP primary. But the second part, the really I don't understand here is that you have had now seven, eight years of frustration with Obama and trepidation about the inevitability of a Hillary nomination for the GOP to kind of a coronate a George W. Bush type figure to kind of pluck him or her out of left field or some governor's mansion. And I can't believe looking back that this field was the absolute best that they could come up with. Whoa, I agree with you completely. I also think that... I mean, in light of all of that angst and frustration and resentment, you know, the guy from 2008 was just a guy with a speech. He's a foreigner. You know, we question his patriotism. We question his citizenship. After all those three-headed dogs that were kind of let out rhetorically in 2010 to 2012, I mean, you would think that that would have coalesced around a more electable candidate. Except that the GOP itself is broken. Hmm. The GOP as a machine can only identify and cultivate quality candidates to the extent that it is a party that is run beyond something other than gerrymandering election districts and locking up the Deep South around the idea that all government is bad and beware the other and carry your guns. Hmm. You know, that's a long, long way from a traditional conservative message about fiscal conservatism and foreign policy hawkishness and balanced budgets. And when you do that, when you start to build the party around a hostile cultural program and an exclusionary tactics, both politically and socially, you end up with candidates like Donald Trump. Why didn't they have a more of a come to Jesus or come to Joseph moment after 2012? I mean, that was a disaster in hindsight that that coalition didn't hold. And they they brooked the race baiting and the, the Tea Partyism right. and the red meat stuff that got them the house back and, and got them gains. But maybe I'm just too idealistic. There used to be these 
elder statesmen that would say kind of, you know, these these James Baker types that like step back guys or, or Brent Scowcroft types that would allow agitating in the primaries, but everybody would race back to the center and ultimately coalesce around a person who was electable. Do you remember how George W. Bush was manufactured in 99 and 2000 yeah. as the compassionate yeah. conservative? I mean, yeah. this time there was nothing like that. Well, I don't know that Mitch McConnell is the wise man who steps away from controversy in the Senate. And John Boehner clearly got filleted as a compromiser. Yeah. You know, he really wasn't able to. I mean, to geez, Eric Kanner, Eric Kanner, our congressman right here. I mean, people people are, are, are still in disbelief that that happened. Yeah. And I think it's because the party itself is factionalized. And there's the Tea Parties. There's the part of the party. There's the evangelicals. There's traditional fiscal conservatives. There's social conservatives. And I don't think they see a lot of common ground with each other. And and you see that now in the ongoing GOP convention. Everyone on the floor of the convention is of a mind that it's a very quiet, unenergized gathering, and people are sort of gritting their teeth and nominating Trump, but there's no real enthusiasm. And I think the thing that's going to come out of this election is a reinvention of the GOP. Mm, it has to crash and burn and, and, and recreate somehow. That creative destruction has yet to happen. Like the Democrats in 68, right? You know, eventually out of that, after that election, you got the new Democrats with Clinton and Gore and that crew. Gosh, but that was a long period. I know you weren't around back then, but, you know, I, I was born during the New Deal, Tim. And uh, <laughs> the Democrats in 68, gosh, Jimmy Carter, would he have been elected without Watergate? And then what happened to the Democrats? And then Reaganomics. And, I mean, <laughs> for it to ultimately materialize I mean, you know, and build Clinton. Gave, gave way to, to, to Richard Nixon mm -hmm. and gave way to, to Ronald Reagan and the modern GOP. And the GOP has run that opportunity very well for a long time in terms of their own interests, but they are essentially listless and rudderless, however you want to describe it, and divided by factions. And they're going to get to have to get their house in order if they really want to be competitive. I could be totally wrong on this, but as much as I thought that Trump was had a good shot at being the nominee when I was asked about it last summer, I think he's walking into a buzzsaw in the general election. And I think it'll be interesting to see the party realignments that come out of this. We're talking to Timothy O'Brien. He's the executive editor of Bloomberg Gadfly and Bloomberg View, uh, sites that I adore, by the way. They must be visited. They're free. They're yours. They're prolific. They're, they're mobile happy. They cover everything from politics to tech to iPhone inventories. Critically, his famous book, was it from 2005? Correct. Trump Nation, The Art of Being the Donald, which, which he participated, right? You guys were on a plane watching Pulp Fiction together, and he, he'd opened the kimono to you. Uh, but what he ultimately found that was disturbing was that he thought that by, by you doing your homework and your due diligence, you vastly understated his net worth. He seems to be someone who likes to be quoted as a billionaire. You very recently said maybe he was worth a fraction of that. Yeah, you know, the book, I wrote the book in 2005. I did spend a lot of time with Donald. We crisscrossed the country on his jet on several occasions. I was at his home in New York, his home in Florida. At one point, we probably had contact daily for months. Uh, he likes to court the press. As much as he likes to say he's a very busy man, the reality is he's got a lot of time on his hands. Hmm. And he loves to work the press. And the book was a biography of Trump, but also an attempt to capture the Trump phenomenon in our times and in the various worlds he inhabits, real estate, casinos, reality TV, the political process, New York City, and so forth. And I used him sort of as a vehicle for exploring those areas. 
And in that sense, it was a cultural examination as much as it was a biography. And we did spend a lot of time together. I, prior to working on the book, had covered him while I was a reporter at the New York Times. And I had previously worked as a research assistant on Wayne Barrett's biography of Trump. And Wayne and I reported a lot of Trump's casino, real estate, and political activities in New York and Atlantic City in the, in the 1980s when he famously blew up. And so I came to the book with a lot of history with Trump, but had never spent as much personal time with him as I did on Trump Nation. Throughout the book, we were very candid with each other, I think, about what our goals were. I think he thought I was going to write a book that was simply out to scalp him, which wasn't my goal. Mm -hmm. I, I wanted something that was full-blooded and robust. But I also told him that I was going to address things like his track record, his claims about his wealth, his history in New York that might have made him uncomfortable. And we went back and forth talking about this a lot. And, and I remember at one point he said, you know, I don't know why I'm doing this. It's probably going to be a bad book. And I said, well, why did you participate in the book? And he gave me three reasons. And he said, well, one, I really like you. Now, I don't mm -hmm. think that's true, but that was his first reason. One, I really like you. Two, I think it would be a challenge to me to try to help you to discover who the real Trump is and to convince you of how good I really am. Oh. And I think the embedded thing in number two was I was at the New York Times at the time. He's a native New Yorker. I think he really wanted that kind of good housekeeping seal approval from the hometown newspaper. As much as he dumps on the New York Times these days, he has always courted the New York Times as sure. approval and has sort of venerated the paper. So I think that was an animating force. And then the third reason he gave me was really interesting. He said, in the end, I don't really care if it's a bad book because I essentially have my own printing press these days. If you write a book that's bad, I can just go on TV or talk to a newspaper writer or magazine writer or go on the radio and say, Tim O'Brien's a whack job. He's a nut. He's a loser. This is a bad book. So I don't really care. And what's interesting about that third statement is he's certainly right that he had an unusual amount of firepower as a, the subject of a book in terms of his own ability to come back at the book. And, and obviously, he also came back and sued me. But that awareness is even truer now. Because at that time, in 2005, we were pre-Twitter. Right. We were pre-Facebook. And the great reality of social media now is that it's given people, both high and low on the social spectrum, uh, an unintermediated direct route to readers and other people, which I think is a great democratic event. Sure. It also allows for people like Trump to take his message directly to his fan base. Hmm. And that's been a hugely potent tool for him in the 2016 campaign, both against his opponents and the press. And he uses it very effectively because he's someone who thinks in sound bites. Uh, you know, he almost has attention deficit disorder. I doubt that he's clinically diagnosed as such, but he's got a very short attention span. And he likes to go for quick emotional hits. And Twitter certainly lends itself to that, and as does Facebook. So he cooperated with the book. At the end of the day, it was, I think, a 270-page book, and he had a hard time with two pages or about a page and a half of it in which I looked at his history of uh, exaggerating his wealth or making claims for his wealth that were very difficult to substantiate. And the traction he got with publications like Forbes that right. oftentimes took his claims at more at or face less value. face value. Yeah. yeah. And the rest of the media as well. And vaulted him prematurely and without enough evidence into the ranks of mega billionaires. And I think for him, 
being in the ranks of billionaires has always been very important because he's a deeply insecure man, which might surprise people who see Trump, the tough talker, Trump, the bully, Trump, the man who wears his opposition to his opponents on his sleeve. When I read your book and when I saw the footage of him off the mic on, on Morning Joe that was controversial several months ago, now I'm not a doctor, I don't even play one on radio or TV, but it seems to have some of the flex of, of manic depression. I mean, high and low, I mean, really, really, really gets giddy when he gets the attention. But he's double, he's, he's questioning, he's questioning, do you think they did a good job? Do you think they did a good job? Like, why should a billionaire who's the presumptive candidate at that point care what, a, what an MSNBC hostess says on the thing? Like, to the point of repeating it two or three times. And you can see he's completely in his element when he's riling up a crowd and, and loving it. And this is almost the antidote to those years of bankruptcy and being in the woods and losing casinos and and seeing things like like you've documented Trump Airlines, Trump casinos, Trump stakes, uh, Trump University, all these things flame out. Well, I think his need for attention and and validation began long long before his holdings blew up in the 1980s. It was with his 90s. father Fred Fred Trump and and you know, he was sent to yeah. military school. I don't I don't kind of know where to pull from it. You would think that there'd be a modicum of self-actualization to the man. You're, you're married to a gorgeous supermodel. Marla Maples was like the apotheosis for me. Gosh, you know, like you, you, you're already on your, your third wife. You've had a hit show. You can uh, just call up CNN and they'll stop everything else and they'll run your phone call. I mean, what else do you need? You need to be loved and praised. And, and if that hole is deep and broad enough, if that hole in your psyche and in your sort of emotional core is that deep and vacuous, it's almost unfillable. And I think he's got an unfillable, unquenchable, unquenchable thirst for attention and, and love and, and, and praise. And I think his dad, you know, Fred Trump was an authentically self-made entrepreneur, a hard-driving guy who didn't brook a lot of dissent, was very hard on his kids, was hard on Donald. Donald's older brother, Fred Jr., ended up an alcoholic, died of alcoholism in Florida, um, wasn't welcomed in the family real estate business and had no interest in it. Donald did, but he, he really grew up under the yoke of his father. And I think um, a lot of his business strivings were an attempt to, to, to satisfy his father as much as it was an attempt to make his own mark in the world. But also, I think... This is a man who, as he approaches his 70th birthday, actually he's already had his 70th birthday um, this past June, um, doesn't feel secure about who he is in the world because he's made so many false claims about it for so long around things about his wealth, his business success, his educational accomplishments his relationships with women. Whenever you see Donald Trump in a public forum say things like, I went to Wharton, I'm a really smart guy, okay? Um, I've made a lot of money, I'm worth $10 billion, okay? I'm an incredible deal maker, I've done great deals in both real estate and casinos, okay? Anytime he ends one of those sentences with okay, okay is the big tell in Donald Trump land. It basically means okay, because he doesn't believe in himself. 
And he's almost asking the audience that he's telling this to, to help him validate it, because it's not true. You talk about the reality distortion for force field, and you talk about people rightly out there wanting to stick it almost in a nihilist way, bring down Capitol Hill, these bastards, they've never looked out for our interests. How do people not see through that? I mean, my six-and-a-half-year-old could kind of see through, you know, a guy who's like, I'm the best, it's going to be huge, it's going to be incredible, okay? You don't even have to be a first-year bachelor's psych prospective major to catch that. But I think most people do that. see through it. And I then they're, th- they're okay. I mean, all in spite of all that, we just want him in there because I know he's going to be a bull in a china shop, and that town deserves to be raised. I think most rational voters see him now for what he is, which is he's a carny act. Um... I think the voters who support him don't care about that. They want somebody who's going to teach Washington a lesson, and they want somebody who they think is going to defend them. I think they're going to be, if Trump were to be elected, I think they're going to be, they would be rudely surprised on both accounts because, one, he lacks the intellectual, managerial, and emotional discipline to be an effective chief executive in Washington and actually deliver on public policy positions that would help the people electing him. And then secondly, he's gonna, he, he would have to deal with Congress, and, and the Congress isn't going to just kowtow to a Donald Trump. <laughs> and that would make it very, very hard for him to also deliver to them. It's fasci- and, it's, it is fascinating to me watching uh, the likes of Paul Ryan and, and you know, John McCain and some of the uh, the, the the more establishment figures hold their noses to to not say anything ill of him. Um, you know, it's 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 one thing to be out there as kind of Jeb Bush sitting with with uh, you know Babs forty one and saying like how could how could any woman vote for this guy? There have been precious few people out there. I mean, even John Kasich. Gosh, they're they're holding the convention in your state, and you you signed a pledge that with everybody on that stage that that will support the nominee, whoever it is, but. These guys are just trying their hardest to avoid this guy and and, and close your eyes and just wish he goes away. Well, look at Paul Ryan yesterday when when he was on the the stage in Cleveland. And announcing. And announcing he certainly was not an enthusiastic supporter of Trump through any of that. It was really, I'm here as a member of the Republican Party. I'm doing my duty as someone who has a, a, a pivotal position in the party. But he wasn't there praising Donald Trump. And both Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz are, are going to be on the stage tonight. And, and I would bet that neither one of them are going to have a lot of praise for Trump. They're going to talk about the party. They're going to talk about what they think the party should be. But I don't think any of them are there to praise Trump. That's just it's it's really breathtaking. Um, yeah. you, you can imagine them in the booth. Are they are they going to pull the lever? Are they going to punch the chad for for Donald Trump? And it, it it's probably not too far from kind of hypocrisy to go in there and just avoid the subject altogether. I mean, Marco Rubio, he has like this visceral hate for for Donald Trump. He was called you know what is it, baby Marco or Marco boy? Little little Marco. little Marco and Ted Cruz. I mean, you, you know, what was it? Sniveling Ted. Snivel, Lion, sniveling Lion Ted. weasel. Leave my wife alone. It got yeah. it got really bad. Yeah. And what, Really more horrible. than more than any of the antics of the histrionics was um, how willing Trump was in the primaries to take down Jeb Bush and say, "Look what your brother did in Iraq." Um, I've never seen the, the kind of the presumptive nominee like that take down take down the you know even even I you know even the I, ruling family the ruling of the GOP. family. I mean, Walter Mondale didn't do that to Jimmy Carter. Nobody really 
did that. No, There's still it's some a complete respect lack out there. of civility. It's a complete lack. But it of wasn't civility just the civility thing. It was this precedent for the first time. I mean, Mitt Romney didn't have to mention George W. Bush all that much. He could talk about other things. But this guy went for the jugular. He's like, who are you to talk? Look at what your brother did, and and just dress the guy down. Do you remember the remember stage. the moment where uh, Jeb said to him, um, "You've even insulted my mother," and Trump said. Well, so what? She probably has more energy than you. Oh, gosh. You know, it's just bam. I mean, he was, and it's, you know, that really did speak to a base, a core part of the GOP that is sick of the GOP establishment. And that includes people like Ann Coulter right. and Laura Ingram and and Rush Limbaugh. Uh, you know, the, the kind of um, guerrilla warfare wing of the GOP. It's interesting it's interesting you mentioned that Tim because on the same day that Donald Trump wins this unlikely nomination from the the elephant party you get news that Roger Ailes uh, one of the party's you know 40 50 year attack dogs is on the way out as the the head and visionary of Fox News. I mean really unthinkable that yesterday Tuesday might have been a truly historic day for the GOP in terms of the end of of one era. If you think about the juxtaposition of those two events, it's kind of unthinkable. Roger Ailes, who's someone out there, he's advised, what was it, Nixon. He's worked with Lee Atwater in the past. Some of the people who espouse the the kind of the darkest arts of political rhetoric, I mean, gone, potentially. You're talking about Ann Coulter and all these people. This might just be a huge uh, body blow to the entire conception we have of the GOP. Who knows how this will play out, you know? And then I think, oddly and and, and weirdly enough, um, Megyn Kelly provides the final push out the window for Roger Ailes. And, and of course, Megyn Kelly went head-to-head with Trump. And, and during this whole um, investigation into, into Ailes' allegedly predatory behavior, he was seeking advice from Donald Trump. Um, about how to handle it. So you've got the Trump sort of phenomenon washing across all of the current craziness. And the only thing that I took heart from in Brexit was that it created a cast of completely inept and, and sort of thoughtless leadership on another continent that made our own inept and thoughtless leadership look a little less bad in comparison mm. than it had been prior to that event. Well, Tim, I do want you to put on your hat as as editor of Bloomberg View and Gadfly and, and take me around the world. I mean, other things have happened, namely Turkey, where there's a, the, a purge going on after this uh, kind of laughable coup last week. I thought, you know, I thought that coup to my mind resembled like, do you remember when David Lee Roth tried to take back Van Halen in 1996? <laughs> he goes back on the stage, what was it, the Video Music Awards, like, yeah, this is my time, Eddie, step back, step back, and and he was gone, you know, he's banished for another 10 years. Um, did that come out of left field with, with you guys? I mean, right now we're, we're, what, five, six days removed from this. There's a uh, breathtaking purge going on across several cities of teachers, university heads, army generals, police chiefs. People are afraid to go back. The State Department is considering another travel warning to Turkey. What did you guys make of that? Well, I think I think it'll be a while before anyone knows all of the dynamics, but, but on the face of it, there clearly was a small faction within the Turkish military that thought um, that dissatisfaction on the streets of 
of Istanbul and elsewhere in, in Turkey would allow them to stage a coup. And they just radically miscalculated. And I think the next thing to be seen here is what happens in the wake of this, because Turkey has been um, a country that, that the West has tried to bring into the democratic fold. Um, it has a leader right now who's been anything but democratic. You know, he sense, he censored the media. Um, he's, you know, he's not someone who rules with a light hand. And so what does, what does post-coup uh, Turkey look like for Erdogan, and, and what does that mean for the rest of the world? I, I, I don't know. I, I, I could just couldn't hazard to guess. I think, um, um, I think the West sees Turkey as it always has as a bridge to the regions east and south of Turkey, and and it's pivotal in that regard. But. Um, how that's going to play out, I, I I just don't know. So much has changed just in, in 10 years. You remember the contentious element that Turkey always thought it was worthy of being included in the EU before that was a, a radioactive idea. Now you would think that the EU would want to bring in the likes of Turkey, but then Turkey turned more eastward. And as, as Erdogan himself said, that we want a more pious country, whereas historically since the time of Ataturk, it was a secular Western-looking uh, country where the generals kept any sort of, of of cleric or overly religious prime minister or president in check. Uh, they may be attempted to do that this time around, but there was enormous pushback from the population. Well, and I think, you know, Erdogan was clearly, you know, the, the table was being set for a, a deeper affiliation with the EU right as this happened. And uh, I, I sort of wonder if the calculus of the coup plotters was that was good. they would have the wind at their back a little bit because of that, too. But um, it's really breathtaking. The speed with which it changed people's perception of, of Turkey and stability in Turkey and the speed with which Erdogan reestablishes his authority over the weekend using mm -hmm. a cell phone. Using FaceTime, which oddly enough, yes. he comes in and blocks all these other other media. It must have been a great moment, but Apple stock really didn't bump. No, response. it didn't. It didn't. But it did show that you know. Remember the Green Revolution? Yeah, you know, back in. in well, you saw in Iran that that was that Iran. was really broadcast over Twitter, and I was I was but, but, born and that in, was people yeah. on the streets, right? This is the first time I can recall where a leader use social well what's what's funny opposite what's direction, funny is right? while you're still in that in that part of the world a lot of the islamic revolution was built i think on the rhetorical backs of the ayatollah khomeini sending back audio cassettes from paris yes. Um, yeah. it, it's, it's the, old, so, the old form of social media. The old form of social media. If you imagine Tiananmen Square in the age of the cell phone, or, or I, I mean, it just it just blows the mind. Now, while you're talking about coups, the on the other side of the world, the other weakest link in emerging markets right now is Venezuela. Um, which Hugo Chavez came to power in the late 90s, wrote a swell of populism, completely rewrote the Constitution, consolidated power, threw a lot of social welfare programs at his base. And now, you know, he's not been alive for a couple of years, but Nicolas Maduro, his replacement, has been overseeing a, a, a nearly a failed state. You have unbelievable hoarding. I mean, Bloomberg ran this uh, spectacular uh, diary this week, which you read, of, of what it's like to procure food in in Venezuela, I mean the bizarre black market, the bizarre arbitrages, and uh, the editorial board at Bloomberg wrote about um, you know Maduro finally announcing that all ministries, ministers, and institutions of the state are henceforth at the command and absolute subordination of me and my defense minister. How long can this guy hold on? 
I'm not saying that you're a, a, a Venezuela expert, but this has been on well, your radar I mean, daily. And everybody in finance is wondering if they're going to default, what it's going to yeah. do to OPEC, what it's going to do to uh, a market that's on tenterhooks about emerging market contagion. Look, I think the Chavez regime was built on the back of two things, his personal charisma and oil prices, which during his rule were escalating the entire time. And Maduro's now overseeing a, a petro state that doesn't have a diversified economy, and oil prices have plunged. Um, Vladimir Putin, by the way, is not immune to that. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think, um, look, there's been a lot of, again, you know, I never know. I, I hate predicting how long regimes can last, whether it's Erdogan or Maduro or Putin, because I think it's so particular to a country, and I think you have to be a very intimate observer of the country's economy and geopolitics and be on the ground there to predict those kinds of things. But I think we're living in a period right now with oil prices where it is a seismic and epical change, and that is washing across um, Saudi Arabia. I think it, it explains, obviously, why Saudi Aramco is is being taken public. Um, the, the Saudi regime, Saudi aristocracy, monarchy rather, uh, recognizes that they're not going to have the kind of oil revenue mm -hmm. they once did, and the, and the, and that if that if that if the country's going to remain stable, they've got to diversify the economy. If they're going to diversify it. They need new funds, so they're auctioning off their most valuable legacy oil asset, Aramco, in Russia. We started to get reports now of food shortages and, and consumer staples being hard to find. Putin's great traction electorally in that country was not in Moscow with the affluent and the intellectual elite, but really in the rural zones. And he's been able to coddle that part of his electorate because oil enabled him to, to essentially provide for them. And I think the same is true of Venezuela. Oil masked a lot of problems there. Uh, so as that Band-Aid gets ripped off, I think you're going to see uh, – I just have to believe you're going to see regime change everywhere that's touched by oil in that way. Mm -hmm. Full disclosure, uh, we're talking to Timothy O'Brien, editor of Bloomberg View and Bloomberg Gadfly. He joins us from Bloomberg's global headquarters, the mothership on 58th and Lex. Was it 56th and Lex? I used to work there. For 59th. Years. 59th and Lex. How's a peanut butter machine doing there, incidentally? It's still here, Robin. And occasionally I, I love to go and get an apple or celery or a banana and a little warm tub of. Yeah, but you guys, you know, I, I briefly interviewed for a Bloomberg view. I was considered by, by Shipley and Ruben years ago. I wasn't good enough. I didn't make the cut. Uh, but I didn't know that. You had, you had unbelievable. So is this payback? No, no, no. Payback. Come on. This is great. You had unbelievable catering at that foundation up on, what is it, Madison Avenue. It was unbelievable. I just wanted to we're sit no, around. We're, and we're in the mothership now. You're in the mothership the, now, but back in the day, 731 Lexington gosh. Avenue. You had, yeah. you had sauteed chicken and, and various kinds of, of spring water and everything. I, I, missed, like, I missed that era. <laughs> I, I, came, I came well after that. Yeah. You're the kind of guy who always ate at your desk, Tim. And I, you know, I, I actually think you guys have done a, a really spectacular job. When I look at the arcade of stories, not only on Bloomberg View, I, I urge everybody to visit um, Bloomberg.com slash view and Bloomberg Gadfly. It's just it's just made for consumption in the morning. You want to kind of dig into it on your iPad. You want to you, you take me from politics to 
Matt Levine, um, what's going on with Trump, what's going on with Apple, uh, Unilever buying Dollar Shave Club for a billion dollars. I mean, it's it's just this feast for the mind and the eyes. And it's why almost like I want to have you on for three hours, but I can't. You're right? too kind. and But I will <laughs> say, you know, the this got launched um, out of the fertile imagination and, and mind of David Shipley. Um, uh, we were fortunate to get Mike Bloomberg's backing for it, and, and we've hired on both sites um, uh, a really robust team of it writers. Is, it is really great. I remember I tried to pitch David Shipley on this show. I said, listen, I'll do this for Bloomberg Radio. I guest host every now and then. And he's like, all right, kid, I'll take a walk with you. And we walk up Park Avenue for 15 blocks and everything. He's like, good luck. I'll see you later. No, he doesn't talk like that. But, it, you know, it, it, it pushed me to seek out what you're on right now, and I know you're regretting coming on this show. And uh, but I'm I, not. I'm not. <laughs> not at all. It's a joy. Talk to me about the running of the bond bulls. This is Lisa Abramowitz's story. Everyone in investing circles is saying, you know, it's not just been a three-decade bull market in bonds when, I guess, what, the short-term interest rates were in the high teens and Paul Volcker broke the black pack of inflation. But now you're talking about three and a half decades and people out there like Morgan Stanley's head of interest rate strategy sees yields on 10-year U.S. Treasuries heading to 1%. Yeah. Tim, I don't understand it. The stock market's at an all-time high. Unemployment, you're told, is under 5% or under 6%. What in the world are we doing? You know, this all comes back to the central bankers right now. I think they're... Uh, I think bond traders hate the central bankers because the the bull run that you mentioned in in the bond market um, has obviously um, come under siege to a certain extent, and and big institutions like Pimco are are trying to find their way in the world in the wake of that. Um, the reality is the, the interest rate regime we're in globally right now is also a response to the, still a response to the financial crisis of 2008. And without legislatures in, in, in developed countries uh, willing to, to take on fiscal measures to stimulate economies, it was all left with central bankers. And they don't have a lot of tools. You know, there's helicopter money and there's interest rates. And they've driven interest rates as low as they can because their sense of monetary history is such that if they don't step into the breach during financial crises, it only makes things worse. I happen to agree with that. The problem is once they exercise, exercise that, that power and, and, and put fingers in the dike, they weren't supported by legislatures that then – um, pursued uh, fiscal stimuluses like road building and bridge building. Yeah, and, all that and so, good stuff. so seize on that to the fact that we have this bizarre but rather welcome unintended consequences of, of long-term interest rates so low. Why isn't the government parlaying that to build out infrastructure? It's almost a once-in-a-lifetime chance to take money at next to nothing to build things that the economy can grow on for the next 50 years. Do you, do you know what I'm getting at? I know what you're getting at, and this actually brings us back to Mr. Trump in a very odd and bizarre way. But the the reason they're not doing it is because we're in, in an era where no one likes the idea of big government spending on big public-funded projects, even when it might make great economic sense. There's an ideological and... and um, almost personal um, antipathy towards that 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 is 
undermining to the economy and to the American public and to people globally. But it exists. And, and again, it's, it's part of the anti-government fervor. But you even sense that among the disaffected who have witnessed Citigroup get capitalized, take multiple rounds of bailouts, the heads I win, tails you lose, you know, private profits, socialized risk element of Goldman Sachs and dividends. I mean, people, people still are averse to the government. I mean, they were OK with cash for clunkers or with fiscal stimulus, but something akin to like a tenth of the New Deal would not fly with this electorate? Um, I think it could fly with this electorate if you had leadership that could sell the electorate on it. And what's if there ever was a moment for that, it was 2008 and 2009. And there was a moment there when I think Barack Obama could have taken history by the horns. Oh, the shovel-ready right. period, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and what came out of that? Very little. Um, and I think it was because he faced doctrinaire opposition to it. I think he had people that he brought into his own administration who who were not uh, sympathetic towards it. And, and I think we've ended up with stasis. 70% of the U.S. GDP is driven by consumer spending. And to have consumer spending, you need to have consumers who feel like they can spend. And when you've got a weak job market and, and no... Uh, real wage growth, people don't feel that way. And it has a detrimental economic impact. And until we address that, um, we're going to stay stuck. And, and, and the only way to address it, I think, is, is, is through a, a, a fiscal stimulus um, along with corporations getting back to hiring, raising wages, and getting the consumer on track again. And that hasn't happened. And, and you know, that stagnation for the average American consumer explains both Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders. I think they were mm -hmm. speaking to the same sentiment. I think, you know, Bernie had a very ill-defined program, but I don't think he was a malicious thinker. Uh, Donald has a doesn't even have a program at all. He's got a pogo stick that he's just hopping around on like a nine-year-old. Um, and, and along with it, a, a very negative message and a very a, a sort of a, a very base appeal to, I think, people's darker sentiments. Now, Tim, I'm not asking you to, to beatbox like uh, the late Rob Bass in the mid-1980s, but you have the, the next 10 minutes or so to close this out on your own. What do you want to talk about? What am I not talking about that needs to be talked about that wow. you are or haven't covered or are about to cover on Viewer Gadfly or elsewhere? Wow. You know, I, I came in so... Um, um, ready to talk about Trump that I hadn't really wrapped my head around other topics. But um, I think um, I think China is always a great topic. I think wither China and and uh, the Chinese economy. When, when are you know if China can't revivify its own growth, it's going to have a detrimental impact on on on. Asia and the Asian economies at, a, at the very least. And it, that will also make it even more important for the U.S. economy uh, to sort of fuel sentiment and growth around the world. So I think, I think China uh, is going to be the question of the day for the next 30, 40, or 50 years. Wow. Um, it's a pivotal, important country. It always has been. Is there a part think, of you, is there a part of you that worries or suspects that it could end up like 
Japan. Everybody was talking about it in 87, 88, 89, Rockefeller Center. It was the next big thing. Yeah. It was going to be the biggest yeah. economy in the world. So, so many people have shot that down. It's like, no, really. Demographically, everything else, there's really nothing else in common. But then I talked to Jim Chanos, who we've had on the show, and the debt levels and the amount of public spending. Uh, yeah. You saw that one stat. Three years. In three years, they used as much cement as the United States did in the entire 20th century. Well, and coal and copper. I mean, the commodities bust in large part was a reflection of of the Chinese appetite waning for all those raw materials that were part of the Chinese boom. Um, so it, you know, it, it's not just concrete. You know, copper, they were, I think, easily the world's biggest coal consumer. Um, they also have very opaque books. We don't know how much bad debt there really is at, at Chinese banks and in Chinese uh, Chinese corporate ledgers. So that's that's a mystery. I I think it's risky to compare uh, China and Japan apples to apples. The Chinese economy is far larger. Um, it's been run in a different way. Um, uh, I think. What China's trying to do now, and I think they're consciously trying to do it, is pivot from state-led growth to private sector growth. That's a different transition than what has stymied Japan. Japan, Japan became ossified, um, I think, by an overly tight relationship between the banks and, and the large corporate and industrial entities. Mm. Um, that certainly exists in China, but I think the Chinese are actively trying to unwind that. And I don't think Japan still has gotten its arms around how to unwind that. And I think that's a core difference between the two. Um, take me take me also to Europe while I still have you. I mean, this atrocious, horrific attack in, in Nice, and it's a country that is not, you know, the Bataclan attacks, um, constantly on, on, on edge about the next lone wolf attack, or if it's coordinated, if it's in an airport, if it's in Belgium. Um, yeah. Do you do you worry about uh, nationalism and, and separatism and the secessionist movement in France? I mean, Marine Le Pen, for whatever reason, I, I can't resist reading about her or or learning more about her. Like, for example, how how strange it is that many of the Jews in um, uh, France who are becoming reactionary over the last several years are suddenly listening to her. Um, you know, you have a choice. I could stay here. I could move to Israel. Uh, I can get behind the nationalist candidate who might, you know, ag agree to close the borders. Well, look, I mean, I, I think that that Brexit is is a very poignant moment around the idea of Europe and what you're seeing in France with, with Marine Le Pen is not so different from what you've seen in, um, uh, in 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 Britain with UKIP. Um, it's a time where far right or in Austria, you know, there's an election there getting right. re-litigated re essentially. Um, and, and there's a, a vibrant right wing reality around what's going on there. I think all of this is of a fit with what's happening in the U.S. We've, we've come off of a historic economic downturn. And we're now seeing some of the real world fall out of that that we didn't see right when the crisis erupted because some of these things take a long time to play out. But the whole notion of what is Europe and what is France in Europe and what is Germany in Europe and what is what is the UK in Europe are, are very interesting questions right now. There's no there's no 
doubt that nationalism is on the rise. And it's on the rise because you have um, factions doubting whether or not it makes sense to be a community in the broadest sense of the word at a moment when it makes it harder to accept outsiders, whether those outsiders are Syrian refugees or North African migrants um, or Poles moving into into Britain. Um, people are, are, are being very crude and and very ugly, I think, about defining what is an outsider. We've seen that here in the United States with Trump and the wall and Mexicans. It's all of a fit with the rhetoric in Europe and here. And I think the Brexit moment is a very poignant one because it it, it does um, say something about the European experiment and about how the European member states themselves see Europe, and it's not a very optimistic moment. Now, we could see, I, I think, you know, the reality of Brexit could get softened by Parliament and by the EU. I, I, I don't think anyone actually thought it was going to occur. It's almost as if people were throwing a bomb around with one another for fun and then it exploded. Um, and you could see that by how ill-prepared everyone was mm. for the vote once it occurred. I, you know, I think, um, you know, Italy right now is in the midst of, of probably the worst banking crisis of any of the European countries. And it's one of the most it, indebted developed countries on the planet per capita. Yeah. And, and they're going to have to, you know, they're, they're asking for the rules, for EU rules to be bent so they can try to recapitalize their, their banks. And with the UK sort of stepping out of a leadership role now in the EU, that's going to fall to Germany, really, because Germany is the most solvent state and the most economically robust nation in, in Europe. And who would have thunk at the end of World War II that, you know, several short decades later, Germany would be the country calling many of the shots in a unified Europe? Mm. <laughs> I have a buzzer beater query for you in the minute or so we have left, Tim. Uh, Hillary, any of these, any one of these days is going to have to pick her number two. And, and where do you see that headed? Uh, you know, again, I'm not an expert on on forecasting VPs. You only but, play um, one on TV. You have to use that. I just pretend. Visa, I just sure. pretend to be one. <laughs> um, you know, it it um, it. She's gotten down. It looks like to a short list of three people. Um, they're all males. They're all white males. I think um, Trump picking Pence was a very um, small-c, conservative, safe choice for Trump. He didn't go for a woman. He didn't go for a person of color. He probably needed someone like that demographically to shore up his candidacy. But because he didn't take a risk, I think it allows Hillary Clinton to make a more conservative choice herself. And it seems like she's going to be leaning towards a uh, a white male uh figure who's strong, possibly on national security or uh, fiscal probity. And I have it I have it on good authority that a President Trump would pick Sarah Palin for interior secretary. I just shot a big moose. 
Oh, boy, the Trump cabinet. Can you imagine Carl Icahn at Treasury? Or Gordon Gecko we can bring back. Tim O'Brien, yeah. you are a gentleman and a scholar. I'm grateful for you uh, in the hour that you gave us. Thanks for having me on, Robin. It was a pleasure. Tim O'Brien is the executive editor of Bloomberg Gadfly and Bloomberg View. He's been an editor and writer for The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, HuffPost, and Talk Magazine. This guy's more poachable than a salmon. His books include Trump Nation, The Art of Being the Donald. You can follow him on the Twitters at Tim O'Brien. Full disclosure, you can follow us on the Twitters at Full D Radio. Follow us on Facebook, NPR One, iTunes, Acast, Stitcher, WRIR. And everybody, please agitate to get me on Spotify already. <laughs> um, and if need be, Tim O'Brien can burn copies of this and any other show of mine and hand them out on Times Square. You're, you're willing for sure, right? I'll do that for you, Robin, any day. I'm Robin Farzad. Our engineer is John Valentine. Back at you next week. Hey.